giant crab, enemy crab, giant crab, giant enemy crab, enemy crab, giant crab, based on Japanese history, giant crab. This is Roleplaying Public Radio, episode 27, Grand Theft Apparatus of Kowalsh, Sandbox Games. And uh, I'm Ross Payton, and this here is Tom Church. And Ross is clearly diseased right now. Yes, as uh, you can tell, it's winter and I have a cold. Anyways, it's been two weeks or so since our last episode. Of course, this is partially because I took a break vacation. I went to Washington, D.C. to see the inauguration. Good for you, yeah. man. Mister. I'm witnessing history here. Pretty much. Uh, you know where, yeah, you know where I was during the whole thing? Here in Missouri. Delivering shit. Yeah. See, my brother is a reporter for TV Tokyo, so if you watched uh, television in, in Japan, you should keep an eye out for the token white guy reporting about uh, American politics, and that would be my brother. And, uh, yeah, so good for him. I stayed with him, and I saw the uh, Lincoln Memorial Concert, and I saw the uh, inauguration on the National Mall. I was one of those two and a half million people. It was uh, and I want, ridiculous. And I want, just in case you're concerned, I want to assure you, Ross had no trouble getting to a porta potty. <laughs> okay, Tom. Again, we're talking about boundaries. I, 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 I'm not really embarrassed. There by are it. no it's boundaries not... between us and the listeners, Ross. Okay. Well, no, there are some, like your circumcision injury or whatever. Ross, shut the hell! My <laughs> God, man! I'm just gonna keep bringing that up. And I'm gonna keep doing that as my response. Okay, that's fine. We're not. We're not deep. So uh, I'll have uh, photos on Flickr actually up tonight after I post the episode so you can see my little contribution or my little participation in history and stuff. Whether or not you like Obama or whatever, it's a historic event. It was uh, everyone for mob that crowd that large. Everyone was very polite um, and I just had a great time. So anyways, enough about that. Oh, I did record actually the speech while I was standing in the crowd with our little portable uh 3d surround sound recorder so So, i probably will be posting a left and right channel surround sound version of the speech well let me ask you uh what exactly is the sound of two million people just softly chatting (laughs) uh actually there were a lot of cheering uh there was a little booing when bush came on the uh oh say it ain't so i know right uh yeah it was kind of like it's not mean hard. It's more like, ah, we're the winning team. You know, it, it, the the funniest thing was, uh, I think, uh, some of the uh, crowd started, uh, na 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 na, hey, goodbye, and you know, whatever. So, Even, but no shoes thrown at him. No, no, no shoes. It was too. Fu- it was too goddamn motherfucking cold to throw <laughs> your shoes away on something like that, dude. If you really hated him that much, you'd be you'd be willing to risk that. Mm, not at a jumbotron of Bush. See, I was. Well, that'd it, be an easier target to hit. <laughs> that, he wouldn't even know that I threw the shoe at him. So but I bet you the I bet, bet you the thousands of security would. Well, there were like about twenty thousand National Guard there, so yeah, that would have been but, real fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you damage our motherfucking du- Jumbotron screen. Like, I'm sorry. Democracy! Yeah, I would have been the last people shipped out to Gitmo. <laughs> yeah. uh, so. I would have mourned you somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so this episode, we're going to be talking. We actually, uh, first thing, uh, people on our forums have been asking for anecdotes and whatnot because those are always popular. We have quite a few anecdotes, actually. Uh, Tom's letter, you're going to be. Is gonna Tom, be yeah, my letter is actually an anecdote from one of my best friends in gaming. <laughs> right, so we got that uh, in the 
uh, coming up. And we also have uh, two or three other anecdotes uh, from our listeners and friends. So, uh, yeah, and probably we'll have one or two of our own. Um, that's that's how we roll. Yeah. So we'll uh, have this will be jam packed with anecdotes. But so we do have a, a topic now. Uh, sandbox games, which is kind of what the D and D game uh, that I'm running, I've been running for the last couple months, uh, has been. Now, obviously, uh, uh, Bear Swarm, uh, another Springfield RPG podcast. There's three of us: uh, us, the Bear Swarm, and Dragon's Landing. Not that Dragon's Landing's ever said hi or communicated or acknowledged our existence but whatever that's there's their loss man yeah exactly uh they did a episode on uh, sandbox games a couple weeks ago uh we as bit of disclosure neither tom and i have listened to that because i've been in dc been too busy to listen to any podcast by the time i get off work i'm too damn tired to really do much of anything so uh yeah hopefully we're not treading over the same ground if you listen to both podcasts so anyways hi rob and mike and all those other people Anyway, uh, so sandbox game obviously modeled after the open. In, the 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 goal is an open ended game as much as possible. Much like our title. The, yeah. Um, you know, this could take a lot of different forms, and uh, you know the model is obviously Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Uh, where but, before you actually start actually doing anything in the game, you can steal cars and drive everywhere in the city, except the terrorists that close the bridge. So you can't go everywhere at first. Yeah. But you can pretty much do whatever you want. Yeah. So, what do you do? Uh, how do you run in a uh, sandbox game? And also, if you're a player, how do you play in a game and make it fun? Because a lot of players, I think, are sort of like, what the hell do I do? And, and believe me, it's e- it is easy to uh, just start going down a really dick, unfun path. Yeah. yeah, and remember, games, RPGs, are a collaborative type of game. And everyone has to pitch in, basically, to make it fun. So yeah, so the first person, dick. the first person that says, "Okay, now you're here, so what do you do?" And the one person that says, "I get me a fucking woman," All right. is obviously you know. Now, if you're a good GM, you can potentially use that. Sure, sure. Well, or but if that's yeah. a prelude to what everything he's going to do, you're, right? You're you know, you you better have some other players that. Well, the problem with I'm things. getting a woman thing is that, okay, fine, you get a woman. Several hours later, you're done with her, or she's done with you. And you're like, impo- well, yeah, make make a stamina check. Okay, you're done with her. Oh, you failed your check. She's done with you. She's laughs at you and walks off. Uh, what do you do now? I get another one. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you if you're stuck in a rut, that's when you're starting to be a dick. So, but after oftentimes I've actually been in situations where the players take care of that. Like, yeah, I go to where he is and kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, well, he's busy. You're busy with your woman that yeah. you obtained. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, first off, let's talk about running the game. Yeah, uh, okay. Let's game. Um, the basic idea is start with a few rules, a basic few, you know, the basic concept, where you're going to put it, and a few absolute rules that will sort of set the boundaries of your sandbox. Yeah, I mean, a sandbox isn't infinite. There has to be some sort of limitations of where you can go or what you can't do. So you make it either geographical, it's in a particular place, or it's in a particular setting, or, you know... You, I think the best sandbox games have those kind of limitations. So you can, so the players focus on one type of action. a dungeon, a yeah. town. Yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be geography. It could be a globe-trotting sandbox game, but uh, the players, for example, only have so much money, so they can't go everywhere. Or they can't just throw money at a problem to make it go away, or uh, they only have so many resources to use. So don't. 
sandbox game isn't you know turning on the cheat codes and doing whatever the hell you want you know so there fun, has to like, be trust me, fun as that is that, that does get old after a while yeah so set some ground rules some boundaries to uh, for example in the the new world game obviously every player is starting level one and their colony is very small so there's a lot of limitations of what well, they can yeah, especially can't at first you know the biggest the biggest problem we had was basic supplies of survival yeah so. Now of course we've you know, we've taken care of mostly that. Now it's you know now that you know the basics are taken care of. Now the now the full social bullshit of a bunch of people far away from home living in one place can begin. Yeah. So okay, once you set the once you get these the these sort of overall uh, design theme going, uh, then you prepare by creating a toolkit. And by toolkit is sort of a go-to collection of everything you need to run, any type of particular encounter or scenario. Archetypes of characters. Yeah. So here's what I would put in a toolkit, say, for the D&D game. I would have NPCs, uh, non-combat NPCs, like uh, the people, in, well, I'll just use the New World. What I did to start out with was I defined who the major players are in the, in the colony. The captain. The captain, the priest, uh, the merchant lords, and sort of figured out what their little agenda was. And uh, then I figured out who the players were outside of it, you know, the two tribes, mm-hmm. the Black Ravens, the Grey Fangs. And uh, once I got those out of the way, then I, I came up with a list of go-to combat encounters, which fortunately for that D&D, it's very easy. You look up level-appropriate monsters, and they'll have little encounter lists, like... You know, a level one encounter is three goblins, two blah, 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 and blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know. So you just write out a couple of those. And, uh, and like, these things do not have to be very detailed. Yeah, yeah like, you know, the, you know the, two, the two factions outside the camp, you didn't come up with their entire history from their founding to now. No, no. Uh, you came up with what the players would in- come into the play with. You know, what would... Uh, the players reasonably be able to figure out what they would reasonably be able to uh, access. You know, if the players, if their secret history is something only the greatest lore masters would learn, then obviously a level one character is. That's really only important that you know it. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, it's really not even that important that you know it if it's not never going to come up. Right. So that would be, um, you know, once you have the the social NPCs, the, the combat NPCs, and they can obviously overlap depending on the players treat mm-hmm. them. Uh, then uh, you set up the fights. Then you oh a couple of maps, like a couple of different battlefield layouts, so that you can quickly set up a combat encounter. Obviously in D and D, since everything's on a grid, everything's yeah, it's on, a lot easier. Yeah, to so you can set up sort of. So you have a you don't have to figure out uh you don't have uh, generic. Oh, this is a flat ground with one obstacle in the middle, or something. Or like have that. to come up with something on the spot. Yeah. So and, uh, yeah, coming up with a map on the spot is—I don't care how good you are—it takes time, which then causes minds to drift. Right. So perhaps you develop, uh, and then a couple other maps. You know, like a map of the general area, maybe a couple of uh, generic dungeons. Like you can use old modules. One thing I like to do is have go through old D and D modules and print out the maps or get the maps. 
without any labels on them and just have them handy, then I can just say, oh, well, the players want to go explore the dungeon, then I can just pull out one of those generic dungeon maps and say, all right, here's here's where you are and here's where you're going and blah, 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 blah. So. Yeah. Now, other games, if you want to do this with other games, it's a little more tricky because, you know, D&D has a lot of just quick stuff that you can throw out. Well, let's, uh, yeah, why don't we use another example? Like, I am a member of the Delta Green email list, which is a modern Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. scenario uh, or campaign, and it's modern horror, X Files, government conspiracies, UFOs, aliens. Now, somebody on the list posted what I think is a brilliant sandbox scenario, uh, basically setting the modern real world. All the characters are like espionage or you know characters with oh, this is the military. Tra- yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the training uh, yeah. exercise. Isn't Here's it? the yeah. scenario. All the players start in an airport at Topeka, Kansas, with just the clothes on their back. And they have 24 hours to get the following items. Uh, $500, a gun, a car, a stolen, uh, probably an identity. Well, that's not necessary, I don't think. A safe house. And then once you have all of those, uh, then you have to track down the other characters who are also hiding in the town. Nice. And whoever tracks down the most uh, characters wins. Uh, as long as they get all the items, and that would be your sandbox. You set the rules. You know, you're all these law enforcement, your intelligence agents on a training exercise, so they can't just kill people. Well, they can kill people, but you know that would probably not look bring, good. That bring the authorities down, and which would negate your successful conclusion. Yeah, rule number one is don't get caught. So if you get caught, you fail. And uh, then, but. You have this whole city that you can reasonably... You could just Wikipedia, you could just Google up, okay, where the police department? You know, you have the maps already there. You have all mm-hmm. the NPCs right there. And uh, you can figure it out. You just go with it. And <laughs> so that's a whole that's a whole scenario. You could have uh, come up with a couple of training exercises like that, and that would be several sessions worth of fun. And uh, that would be... I'm definitely going to run that as a one-shot game sometime in the uh, near future because that's such a great idea. I just love it. I'd love to see uh, how you and Jason and all the other and Cody especially. Oh, Cody, yeah, definitely. uh, Would come up with uh, solutions for it. So that's one way of creating a modern sandbox game. Now, that's obviously a very very tight focus, you know, because it's only 24 hours. That's basically one session. But you could open it up, you know, make it a more complex mission. Well, like you you have the, the airport be phase one right then after you know then or uh, actually I hate to say it uh, but uh, well uh, bad movie the movie SWAT mm-hmm. there's one where uh, it's the scene where the, the, their final training mission was to take care of a hostage situation aboard a plane right and you know the, of course everything was there they have you know all their tools tack vests and everything but <laughs> they have a plane and they only have like they have like a short amount of time to prepare and they're being timed Right, to get on, you know, to get on, you know, figure out their ways into the plane, take out, you know, take out the hijackers, and you know, not hit any civilians on the plane. Right. So that, yeah, that, or another thing I'm thinking of, uh, going back to uh, sandbox games, a Saints Row Two, which I haven't played yet, but I've read the basic plot, is you wake up from a coma in a prison in a prison hospital, and a, you have to, you know, you have to find out who set you up, who got you nearly killed, which put you in the coma in the first place, and then two, get revenge on that person, and three, take over the city as the preeminent gang lord, and 
that would be those would be the boundaries right there. Those mm-hmm. would be all the rules you would need. You you need to keep working to, towards those goals, uh, and but how you accomplish them would be up to you. You could be a direct thug. You could be very stealthy using politics and influence. You know, blackmailing people mm-hmm. or whatever, or any number of tactics. And so that that's I think. A uh, another way of doing a modern sandbox game. So uh, now you mentioned you had some uh, sandbox games you've run. Yeah, actually, there's a couple I've run uh, where I didn't plan at all hmm. for the whole you know, the whole game session. All I did was I thought of the scenario that I was doing, and uh, well, first I mean it was it was a short campaign I was running. It was in a Star Wars, and. I, the first couple of sessions I planned out as normal. Then for the uh, then for the next two I I said all right, I know where I am. I'm not going to plan any further. I'm going to let I'm going to let them go where they may. And one thing I will one thing I would say I have learned in sandbox games you quickly learn which of your players are truly interested in doing things and going out and who are just going with the flow and reacting to whatever you do. As I found out, which of my players were all of those. Some were, you know, some were just in, just into it. Uh, I think, uh, I think they had to, they had to uh, find someone in a, uh, a hotel on Coruscant and then get out unseen. Which yeah, that that was the basics of it. And most, a couple of them were, you know, re- you know, going around in disguise all the time using code words. Then there were some that were just kind of just sitting around until combat started. So it was it was it was good for it was good for me to plant you know to just do that and test my ability to come up with shit on the spot, and every single encounter I did was I thought up of right at that moment. Right. So, yeah, let's go a little more to the players. You know, different players will respond to sandboxes. Uh, will respond yeah, differently yeah, some, to like other. Some players relish it. Yeah. Some yeah. players like you give them a, you know just a you know a set goal, and then just you know now it's like oh what are you gonna do. And then basically leave it at that. Some of them really just go with it. Yeah. But I've also okay. There's a few things I've learned. First of all, you do need uh, you. You need to know how to respond to some of this. I've been in, like, I've been in a few games where they he just said, "Now, what are you going to do?" He didn't know how to get to where he needed to go. The the game needed to go though. So have it. You know, know how you how, you know how you're going to get it there. See, uh, that's an interesting point you bring up because a lot of players will not have the real world knowledge like uh, they haven't read enough Tom Clancy or whatever to have at least some idea of how uh, espionage agents do their yeah. work. At least in, you know, yeah, in you must, yeah, you must describe everything. Well, one thing you can do, actually, this uh, the training exercise I mentioned uh, in Topeka, Kansas, that was actually a way to give the players, the, the guy who ran that initially, uh, did that to teach the players how to think and act like a spy. So to how to act without any, you know, background, any weapons or whatever, how to, you know, adapt and improvise and uh, overcome. So and, uh, maybe make- some training scenarios in whatever type of game you're running. Mm-hmm. So uh, where where death isn't the consequence of failure or I think right. yeah, it's good to, to do some of that and uh, especially where the consequences aren't always life or death. Right. Because if it's if their lives are being risked every single time they do anything, yeah, they're going to be terrified to make a decision sometimes. Yeah, I remember reading uh, something off the forums: the worst game, worst players ever, bad games thread. Uh, very long thread, very very funny, 
by the way, some players who are running Star Wars game, like right at the beginning of the Rebellion. And the guy, you know, says, oh, there's the stormtroopers are chasing down this guy and trying to get, you know, and they're going to kill him unless you intervene. Uh, no, we don't want to get involved. We don't want to get involved. And he kept trying to throw plot hooks at him to get them involved with the Rebellion. But the players were terrified of this. And mm -hmm. he found out later on that basically the reason why they didn't do anything is because their previous GM was a brutal killer DM who would just destroy player uh, the characters whenever they made a mistake real or imagined mm -hmm. so they became overly paranoid so you know you have to it's yeah, about yeah, expectations don't, yeah don't and uh don't and don't use that as your own personal fuck the players game yeah yeah I've known some GMs that yeah they you know the games where they're running with rules where they plan everything out and things their brilliant game doesn't go the way they planned so then they decided to do a sandbox one, and the moment a player does anything that he doesn't think is right, and is like, well, no, it's like well, it's like you just it's like one of those puzzle games, kind of like you know, uh, like Maniac Mansion or Zack and Wiki, where you just click on the wrong thing and you instantly die. Yeah. So again, there there's sort of a fine line of uh, to draw, but so once again, collaboration, and yeah, you you have to you, you and the, the GM and the players have to be on the same page. Yeah, one one final thing from the GM perspective, in general, I think sandbox games work best when individual missions or scenarios are episodic. Mm -hmm. You know, you keep the individual uh, encounters rather short. You don't want to do the overarching plot where every encounter is linked to another and there's this web of intrigue and you have to pay attention to everything. So, Anyone who's watched Lost will know what that... You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't want to do it. Lost. Uh, you want it more like Law and Order, where everything's sort of yeah. standalone, and uh, you you know play. So that's think of running the sandbox game if your players are very short attention span. So or and, yeah, they, do it do it like an, do it like an episodic TV show. Yeah. So where you know you mention some you know things you did last last episode, right? But you're on a completely new thing now. Yeah. Um, so what would you do from the player's perspective? What what sort of advice would you give? To well. There's some things you can't control at first. Like, if the GM wants to run a sandbox game set into something you're not familiar with, once again, your limit, your options are kind of limited there. Now, if you're a Star Wars fanatic and he's running a Star Wars sandbox game, you have a much better, you know, you have a, you're, you're much better equipped because you just know some of the basics. So you can say, I go to, like, I go to the, uh, you know, to the Holonet data terminal and do this and this because you know there is indeed a Holonet. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't actually um, have the GM tell you, like I'd say, ask if if he says he's gonna, if you know he's gonna run a uh, sandbox game, ask him what it's gonna be set before the game, like preferably a few days. So that way, if it's you know if it's a well to be a sandbox D and D, and you're not entirely familiar with D and D, you can brush up. You know, if you're informed, it's gonna go a lot better for you and the GM. Another thing, though, is you know even uh, whether or not you you have knowledge of it, you won't have perfect knowledge. Not as much as the GM, no, of course not. But suggest things to the GM that are reasonable. It's like, well, if this is a large city, uh, you know, in fantasy world, there should be at least one wizard who I can go to the library and ask him questions about this magical thing I'm a bobber. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of suggest what you would like to do. And, or if it be more specific, like if it's modern day. It's yeah. just, like uh, oh like oh it's uh, we're in San Francisco uh, there is an there is an FBI branch in San Francisco 
Yeah, exactly. So I'll go talk to them and show them my fake badge, and I'll get all access yeah. to their information. Uh, another thing to think about is, uh, you know, be bold, be creative, be imaginative. Just go out there and risk And don't it. be afraid of yeah. failure. The only thing you have to lose is your time. And uh, as long as you're having fun, it's not really lost time. I think so. No, even if even if you even if you end up dying, as long as it was done well and not cheaply. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and of course, yeah, I mean, yeah, and you are going to have those players that the first thing they do is like, you know, like you know, in the case of the airport scenario, the first thing some players are going to do is <laughs> I go to the aviation fuel tanks and knock a guy out, take his lighter, and just light it up. Well, that has nothing to do with what you're trying. You're, you're it's trying. Like, That's to... what I do. Damn it. Well, you're... then you write it out right away. Like, all right. Well, he does that. Um, well, okay. That player's out of the way. Now, what are you guys doing? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, that's that's sort of sabotaging uh, the game. So try to keep. Well, that I've up. got. You know, I'm just more talking about the kill crazy players. Yeah. Well, yeah. The the main thing is don't run a game with those kind of. Hopefully, you can weed out those kind of players uh, from your table. Yeah. You know, uh, like you know, in the case of that scenario, you want it to be an espionage, not the uh, night to the dinner table. This is now at, like a blackout, no witnesses at well, the Well, the guy who ran it, uh, the Delta Green email list, talked about two players who were very tried to cheat right off the beginning. Like one player who parked a jeep full of guns uh, in the airport parking lot before the contest started, and the people who are running the the exercise saw that and they just had the. Uh, uh, Tipped off the cops, so the cops tipped, off the, tipped off the uh, uh, was a TSA. Yeah, well, I mean, there's police there, so yeah, they impounded the the car full of illegal assault weapons. So. And now there's an, and now everyone else everyone else is dealing with the fact now there's extra security at the airport. Another player who tried to use his uh, badge right at the terminal, and he basically did the uh, same thing and got caught so two players who tried to, or no he tried to have money waiting for him at the airport and uh yeah same thing happened to him so <laughs> you know especially if delta green just assume your agency knows everything yeah well not everything well i mean but actually well, it's just helpful for you just assume that whatever your brilliant secret plan is they're gonna know about it whether they do or not it's just a good it's just a good thing to just assume <laughs> So, yeah. Um, and he described, basically, at the end of it, there are two players left who were so well hidden that they couldn't find each other. One was in an abandoned building by the train yard. He had an overview of everything so he could see anyone coming at him. And the other one disguised himself as a frat brother and was staying at the frat house. Nice. And could steal any of their cars because they were always drinking. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's that one guy's friend. And... Um, yeah, so that that was the uh, uh, yeah. I mean, the great thing about sandbox games, it really encourages players to just think of interesting things to do. Yeah, if your players are stuck in a rut and they're always doing the same things over again, uh, try something from a very new perspective, you know, and get them to think like this training exercise. Was, I think is a great thing for players who've never thought like spies and who have more uh, thought like. Special yeah. Forces Commandos. Yeah. And uh, how to be discreet, how to use stealth skills, how to use espionage, lying, yeah. trickery. Because on the, long, because on the, on the other hand, of, you know, the kill crazy players, I've actually had some players that were like really, you know, violence crazy who found they actually liked espionage but didn't know because they had never played it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. Um, 
so yeah, so that's sort of uh, the basics of doing sandbox games. Now, we mentioned a, a sort of the character versus plot-focused games right. uh, in a previous episode, but sandbox games can, are usually much more character-focused because it's about what they're doing. Well, the characters are truly yeah. putting this, pushing the story along. Yeah. Uh, that isn't to say you can't have a plot-focused game, but uh, it, it's much more leaning towards the character focus. So uh, with that in mind... Let's move on to the next part of the show. I think Tom, of course, has a brilliant letter from Andy, which I haven't even read yet. Yeah, so. oh, you'll love it. You're, you're mentioned in it. Oh, yes. It's a game I, I ran, right? Yeah, it's the uh, D&D pirate game. Yes, that I horribly failed at and everything. No, actually, I will tell you, he doesn't really think... He doesn't He doesn't blame you for the failure of that game. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's high praise indeed coming from Caesar. So, uh, Yes. All right, so we'll be back. Alright, in lieu of a letter this time, I'm actually going to read a letter that my friend Andy from Seattle wrote, simply entitled, Legend of the Nautical Druid, or Why I Play Bad Games. I love to be the guy at the dinner table that's waving his hand and spinning yarns that keep people choked on their food and snorting their beverage. I like to make people smile, and I love to make people laugh. Whenever gamers are my audience, I just light up with glee, knowing it's going to be easy to play the bard and cast some spells that shimmer with the familiar light of misfortune and mayhem, the way only a paper and a dice game can conjure. The story of Anton is one of my most favorite, quite possibly the best, and often the first that I pull from my spellbook when attempting any kind of perform check on gamer crowds. I belong to a small cabal of gamers in Springfield, Missouri, home of RPPR, Bear Swarm, and Saga. The breeds that traipse this landscape are varied in their marks and their practices, and their clans were backed by a variety of the triad of, of the triad games dynasty. However, by heritage, most were dungeoneers, and D&D was the ultimate common tongue in this wild land. It was the Bible to the Holy Lands, the Ramones to punk rock. I'd connected with several clans in the few years I'd returned, in my training, I consider myself a GM now, ready to tell stories with dice like a young wizard should, but I'd never, in all my travels, endured a game of D&D. It was new to me, something I achieved by avoidance. So in league with some theater majors for White Wolf games, and now regularly working on my own hopeful homebrew system with that secret cabal of comrades, I didn't have a lot of time or need for the D&D mainstream. In the end, I, can't, I can say only this. I was there for the people. The good, rock-and-roll, awesome people. And that, it would seem, is a typical answer to why do you play bad games. But not the only one. Now let's be clear here. I keep referring to bad games. That's not what this is about. This is about a young man named Anton, a good boy with a long-lost older brother and the unfortunate encounter he had with me, my allies, and the wonderful experience of 3.5 as a noob. So when I drop the background on you with all my cocky spin, remember, this is not a D&D bash, nor an XGM bash. This is simply the atmosphere that naturally occurred on our little fart-scented planetoid festering the back of the best land ever, Geekers. We were playing a pirate game. It was the alchemical result of watching Captain Jack Sparrow in theaters and the rising arguments between cinematic gamers and simulationist gamers. In hopes of striking new middle-oriented ground, we managed a ridiculous idea. Play a pirate game, a game of swashbuckling, swinging on ropes, and dashing dialogue with D&D 3.5 edition. A game about as suave as a handheld circular saw. We were already several sessions into this plot. Ross, our esteemed dungeon master, had gone so far as to purchase a well-noted supplemental guide from the internet. Most noted about the tome? It's a wicked cool picture on the front cover. 
What says pirate more than the painting of a porn star quality pirate babe wearing only what you need to fit the part? Eye patch, captain's hat. I think that was it. She even had a tiny dragon, like like in the little like in the title of the main game, and a gun. Sexy. There are words on this on the inside, but only Ross had the strength to break past that hypnotic cover and delve into its wisdom. Did you know there's a feat in there for riding down sails on a sword? I didn't. As best I can summarize it, we were a ragtag crew of Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow, Jack Sparrow, Manny from Brotherhood of the Wolf, Han Solo, the ship was called the Mediterranean Falcon, there is no such bird, and a semi-retarded aboriginal called simply Pig's Foot. Our unique friend Tom brought the only originality to the game, playing a magic user working toward a dragon disciple prestige class. He was Romanian, creepy, and worth every scene he was in. The plot took off a few sessions before this anecdote finally gets around to where it's supposed to go by introducing a race... No, not a species race, a finish line race, nerd. We, alongside others, including our mortal enemies, decided to join in the great race proposed by a French king. First to sail around the world would gain anything reasonable he could grant. We liked the odds, so much so that we left the ceremony fleeing from a fight Pigsfoot started before he could reveal all the goals of the race. We were also apparently supposed to make maps. We didn't. The night Anton joined our group was the night we returned from a rather impressive cliffhanger Ross had devised. The few choice roles in a well-placed encounter with the South American Aztecs, we had managed to swindle a primitive god into carrying us over the narrow strip of earth where the Panama Canal would later in history be built. The only trick was we had to give him all of our guns. My attempts as the captain to secure this deal failed, and one of my men hid a weapon on his person. In anger at our betrayal, the god did what he must, placing us on the other side of the Central America. At the same time, he put there also our sworn enemies, a rival pirate crew. They had their guns. We had nothing but sticks and swords. We tried to fill Anton in on all of this, tried to let him feel the tingle of excitement at what would be his first battle in a paper-and-dice game, tried to ready him for the adventure. And now a little bit about Anton. Crow, one of Jack Sparrow's, one of the Jack Sparrows of the game, and a close confidant of mine, was working at a, as a bartender at a local bowling alley. While pulling a day shift that coincided with the family leagues, Crow was introduced to Anton. This was a boy that quickly became enamored of Crow when he learned about our D&D campaign, already in progress. Apparently, Anton had an older brother, a fellow gamer. This mentor was not in the picture anymore, I forget why, and he had left all of his old D&D books to Anton. The child read them over and over and ached to join this cult, this craze. When Crow let slip that there were dice in his pocket, Anton got stars in his eyes. Crow approached me, and we both decided it would be altruistic to bring the boy to our D&D game, give him a hand attaining the dream long before our high school or college, where he would permanently be made king over the lesser nerds that did not pupate to women-repelling anathemas until after they'd failed out of P.E. It was a win-win situation. And so, on the night of our big encounter, the enemy ship bearing down on us with guns at the ready, while we, were, we sweat blood in fear and anticipation, Anton came to our aid. Already prepared, the fresh vigilance of his reading paid off. He had rolled up on his own a legitimate addition to our party, a nautical druid. The scene was already set. We were at the head of the ship, roaring, or, roaring orders to the petrified troops on the deck. I drew my blade, now my only de- defense, and opened my mouth to shout in character. I'll say, like, sound in character. But suddenly, before words could escape, a young, dashing boy came darting out of the cabin. I'll save us, cried Anton in character, and the boys leapt forth over the side of the ship into the water, where he disappeared. There was a long, tremendous pause, heavy with awkward confusion. The room had grown silent. Both in and out of character, who the hell was that? Beside me, spooky as ever, Tom merely shrugged. Nobody knew. Cabin boy, Crow said. But suddenly our crew spotted something. The mysterious stranger, cabin boy was it, had turned into a mighty dolphin. Now leaping in white, wide, in white arcs at, along the surface of the sea, headed like a torpedo for the enemy's ship. 
What the hell is he going to do? I was honestly shocked. Everyone on deck stopped working. We all stared. We would have waited there, probably to our death, and gawking at the dolphin boy that appeared, but Manny, our ever-faithful epic-level ranger and Native American, knocked, knocked his bow. Now here's the best thing about 3.5, in my opinion. There is a magical correspondence between what you say and what you do, and what you can do, and what they actually means. In short, it rocks to twink, and Manny? That character was a twink. Standing at the end of our ship was Manny. At the end of our table sat Ed the Head, calculator in hand, poring over the skills of a specialized archer, finding the sum, the exact distance, to derive the accurate penalties to shoot, with a bow, individual enemies on the approaching vessel. The clatter of a D-20. Ed looked up, grinning. Ross, ever loyal, ever true, sighed. Okay, you hear a faint scream in the distance, and one of the invading pirates falls to his death, in the ways below, shot by your ranger. A cheer from the group, from the crowd. Ed only smiles. That was my first attack. Well, crap! I looked at Cr I look at Crow. Let's just do this. We can keep this guy. We can keep this up all day. Then, in character to the crew, drag a bit, get a little closer for Manny, but stay out of range of their cannons. Our rangers sniped them at one at a time, penalties and all, and we all got a bit cocky. Until Ross pointed out the stats on both ships. Attrition was on our side for now, but in a few rounds, the pursuing sails would close in on us. We were considering how to outrun them, how to go faster, when suddenly that dolphin boy did something I'll never forget. Am I at the ship yet? Anton suddenly asked. Ross looked a bit frayed at the edges. He was concerned on how to indulge a player that had just picked up the dice a few moments earlier. Yeah, I guess. Okay, the youngster flipped through his hand-me-down volumes. I want to use polymorph wood. Another silence, wrought with anticipation. Yeah, Ross waited. On their hull, Anton spoke with a unique blend of certainty and a question in his voice. We all exchanged glances, shock and joy on our faces. Yeah, Ross said. Yeah, that'll work, sure. The others complimented, complimented Anton, impressed with his system ingenuity. For a brief moment, Crow and I nodded to approval in, to each other secretly. We had indeed done a good thing. And so the cabin dolphin boy began to tear big chunks of, the, of hull into our enemy's hull. They began to take water, Ross smiled. They start to drag. A shout goes up from the crew, I said. They're cheering for you. Crow patted Anton's shoulder. Many knocked a new arrow. He had plenty. This is going to work, I thought aloud. I suppose we should have expected it. It's really not that hard to guess. Ross did what any good dungeon master would do. He dropped one of the pirates into the water next to Anton's character, a simple level one nobody for aesthetics only. I'm sure with naught but a knife and a rock in his pocket, a rock with an anti-magic field cast on it by their magic user. So that negates your polymorph human spell that you cast to make you a dolphin, Ross scribbled some notes. I'll need to make a swim check. Anton paled. He looked at his character sheet, then at this book, flipping pages nervously. The quiet had returned. We all waited expectantly. Um, Anton looked at Ross, un unafraid to make eye contact, but spoke sheepishly. I don't have swim. More quiet. You're a nautical druid, Ross wanted to get it right. That can't swim. Anton didn't have an answer. Okay, our worthy GM looked frayed again. Uh, make a con check. He failed. Okay... From there, it finally turned into what all D&D games turn into at least once in their running, a real tough spiral downward to dead. Anton managed to fail three consecutive conjects, one with a natural uno. This made it all the more easy for the level suck nobody, with his knife and magic rock, to repeatedly stab Anton. Even level suck nobody, it seemed, put some ranks into swim. This, in turn, accelerated Anton's bleeding and drowning. I'll spare you the details. I have to admit, even now I get choked up a little thinking about it, but what follows is as by the book as you might guess. Anton, being dead after two heroic feats and a handful of in-game rounds, sat in a quiet wonder while we played out the long battle that inevitably occurred. Our ranger Twink had thinned the enemy ranks enough that we actually stood a chance with them despite fighting just swords to their guns. 
There was a real neat mechanic Ross employed where I, as captain, had to make checks for leading my crew against the captain that was guiding the onslaught. Of course, that didn't stand up much to Manny the Ranger Twink or his hatchet, which went into the guy's head. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened had Anton lucked out and thrown some twenties on the table. Would he have stayed with us? Would he have grown into a mighty dork lord? But then I remember that he later joined organized sport. And that alone is a sign that this his happy ending lies outside of epic level paper and dice. All right. Well, that was a hell of an anecdote or letter. I am. Yeah, uh, I've re- I thought. Yeah, when I read this, like this needs to be read on RPPR in my own first draft. <laughs> fuck everything up when I read it. Way. Uh it, it was fine, Tom. Um, I, I totally forgot about that. I mean, I remember vague details uh, of it, but I, I, I just I had n- totally forgotten about the rest of it. I mean. Uh, all I remember is fucking that campaign up, or just it's just that it imploded. I don't even remember how it imploded, right. but Andy, yeah. Andy Henderson, yeah, Seattle, so. Washington. <laughs> so anyway, um, we do have a couple more anecdotes, but first, of course, we need to get to the shoutouts. Yes, and, we do. Um, so, Don, you want to start us off? Yep, I got one, which I would like to say of Midnight Meat Train, the movie. Right, that's uh, based on a Clive Barker short story. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, of course it's you know I had to change a little bit, so it's now a photographer. Right. Well, I mean, you like, mean the character? The characters, yeah. Okay. And but of course, Vinnie Jones plays Mahogany, the killer who brutally kills people, and you know on the subway. Right. And now, uh, I won't go into too much of it, but let's just say that from what I read, they this movie actually used the most fake blood of any Hollywood movie. Now, I can't remember the director's name, but I do remember he's a Japanese director who also directed the infamous cult movie Versus. Yeah. So uh, that's something to take a look at. And uh, its distribution, I do remember reading about its distribution, was incredibly limited uh, because of, for some reason, the company that picked it up just hated it and wanted to shelve it. So hopefully it'll see a DVD release, but it was only released in like 20 theaters across the country. Yeah, I, it pissed like that. me off because yeah. I was looking for. I read about it in Fangoria first of all, and I was looking forward to it, so I had to watch a horrible, you know, evil, free internet thing of it. Yes, Tom, go ahead and admit to that copyright infringement, I'm sure. That'll be- well, if they're not going to deign to release it in theaters where I can watch it, then <laughs> fuck them. That's what I say. Oh. Well, anyway, speak. Well, actually, about movies on the internet, uh, I'll. New website I found called Asian-HorrorMovies.com, which apparently has free uh, streaming uh, Asian horror movies, which, I, as far as I know, are uh, it's legitimate. Or I'm not I'm not sure what it is, but um, check it out. They have a lot of crazy uh, uh, Asian horror movies. One I'd recommend in particular, which I will link, is uh, Noro, uh, which is kind of like a Blair Witch sort of thing, except about a ghost, and it's really really good. It, it's um, like this crew is looking into this uh, ritual, evil demonic ritual that's performed in a village, but the village was abandoned or uh, it was flooded by a lake or by a dam, and uh, the ritual is stopped and then bad things start happening. It's uh, ah, so yeah. Anyway, uh, you have another one. Yes, I do. The comic series Fall of Cthulhu. It's uh, I, I bought the. I remember I bought the first issue of it. The very first one, and it really didn't grab my attention very much, so I kind of just abandoned it. <coughs> Bless you again. 
And uh, th- then I now I've been I picked it up again just you know about a couple of weeks ago and realized that hey now it's pretty interesting. So I'm actually following it regularly now. And yeah, granted it's really just uh, it's like throwing in a who's who of the of the you know Lovecraft mythos. Cthulhu mythos. Well, the Cthulhu. I'm sorry. Yeah, the Cthulhu mythos. They're just. It's not just Lovecraft because although Lovecraft was the principal architect, other authors. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but yeah, the Cthulhu mythos. It's really just like, all right, who could who the hell can we just throw out there? Like Narlahotep, throw him out. Uh, you know, the Harlot, she's in there too. Oh, like just get them all. Like Nodens. Oh, we want him. Well, the Harlot, I think, is actually a specific, not really a mythos figure that was invented for the comic. Whatever. I believe I'm. I'm not 100 percent because she's a Dreamlands figure, and I've always been mm-hmm. kind of foggy about uh characters from the dreamlands so uh yeah that's from boom studios i believe Mm. or yeah boom studios so check that out uh let's see i have another one um survive style five another japanese horror or not a horror movie but just a crazy japanese movie especially speaking of vinnie jones yeah vinnie jones is in this uh as a hitman uh a killer which uh, and it's got three or four different plot lines that intersect and depart at various parts of the movie, and it's just uh, very crazy. It's a very unique movie, and uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it's definitely worth worth watching. Great soundtrack too, uh, so take a look at that if you want to. And uh, I got two last ones, sort of connected. One, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, I uh, just got the Wizard New Wizards of the Coast book, uh, Open Grave. Uh, well, the book the, of the un- new book of the undead. Yeah, the new fourth ad book of the undead, and uh, let's just say in the some of the upcoming D and D sessions, the players are going to be uh, talking and meeting and fighting some of the dead that should be dead and are not. Ah, dead. yeah. Gee, you and undead. I know it's a it's a shocker, right? Between zombies and undead. ghosts and yeah. mummies and things you can't score critical hits on. Yes, and finally, uh, in search of adventure, a new book put out by Goodman Games and uh, you my first fourth edition adventure is being published in it uh, Tides of Doom which is a Lovecraftian level one fourth edition <laughs> yeah, I know I'm just uh, like a broken record aren't yes, I? Are. I'm just like the same damn thing over and over again Yes, so, horror is good, and if the movie doesn't have subtitles, screw it. Now mine is the shortest adventure in the, uh, the book uh, in terms of pages, but mine is the only one with rules for corruption. Basically, the longer you spend in the dungeon, the more corrupted and uh, mutated your character becomes. Uh, when I've run it, uh, I actually ran it at VisionCon, and I will be posting that sometime, uh, which is a local gaming con. It was a lot of fun. Um, I had the paladin actually failed three of a saving throw, so he developed a, a, a horrible, phlegmy, racking cough. Uh, his bones warped and thickened, and he developed a hunchback. And uh, so he was a freak, and uh, all the other players were kind of... Well, so, one developed paranoia and hallucinations, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, nice. Yeah. Lots of good fights in it, uh, lots of undead things to kill, and it's uh, just a good, good oh, time for... There from, we go, there we go, the undead. Well, again. no, it's not everything said. There's also amphibious fishmen, monsters, and, you know, cultists, so variety how's that working out for you it's working out pretty well so um i'll be running into metagames uh february 8th i believe no 7th 7th uh i post on the metagame site so if you live in the springfield area feel free to join in and have fun it's only if you like corruption <laughs> exactly and bring a level one character who will die so uh finally we do have uh, uh you 
couple more uh, anecdotes. I know I got two from emails. Um, this is where Ross will read them. Yeah, now. didn't you have one a uh, Palladium system you want to talk about uh, about having the doctor who had to knock? Oh you? yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was actually suggesting we do the show. Hey, how about we do a whole episode directed to how much to what is wrong with Palladium? Yeah. Then I realized maybe that's piling on a little. <laughs> yeah, we should spread out that. All that right. rage. Yeah, exactly. So uh, why don't we? I'll do one, then you can do yours, and then I'll. Oh do. yeah, quid yeah. pro quo. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Well, you a little breaking it up. We don't want to have just me talking for all this. Time. Layers upon layers. Yes, it's a it's a tapestry. So anyway. Uh, the first one I wanted to bring up is actually from another alumni of my games, uh, Patrick Seth Williams, who is a uh, going for his PhD and uh, very was, it, smart uh, was guy. a regular on some of our sketches. Yes, and he wrote Red State versus Blue State. Yeah. And I like to say right now that we will be doing more sketches later. Yes, as soon as you finish your scripts, just read the damn anecdote, Ross. <laughs> Shut the hell up. Anyway, Patrick writes. The thing that strikes me most about role-playing games, particularly action games, is the lack of creativity among players in combat situations. Part of this, I think, is that because players often overlook their non-offensive skills in combat situations. Perhaps the best literary example of characters, uh, David Gamut from Coper's Last of the Mohicans. He's getting his PhD in English, so, you know, he's the... Mm -hmm. uh, Last of the Mohicans, who... Possessing no offensive skills, begins singing as the English and the Mohicans are slaughtering each other uh, all around him. So Gamut singing prevents most of the Mohicans from attacking him until one of the Braves singles him out uh, as the greatest fighter in the battlefield and cuts him down. Sure, it's a give take, but those non offensive skills can come in handy. So again, being creative. Right. Another reason why I think players lack creativity is they don't respond to cinematic responsibilities required of their characters. Often, games are judged on their, the quality of the cinematics of the GM, but the players are just as responsible to maintain this cinematic atmosphere. Perhaps my favorite cinematic action character was a hitman named Orlean, Orlean jo Johnson in Mask of Nair Lothotep, a uh, uh, game that I ran a few years ago. Ross ran a few years ago. Throughout the game, uh, Johnson became more and more indifferent towards the value of human life and his own sanity. This is the gunrunner talk yeah. towards the end of it. So you were in that too. So. Yes, I was. Um, in one combat in Australia, Johnson watches another one of the player characters tried to sneak up on a camp of cultists and kill them one at a time. When the character, when the player was killed, Johnson unceremoniously mowed down the cultists with his Tommy gun and then checked to make sure all the cultists were dead by putting around in each of their heads. So this was, uh, I think, the character he was talking about was Curry, who mm -hmm. was playing the African medicine woman who tried to uh, stab all the sneak. I and remember, yeah. yeah, and uh, she died. Uh, she did. Yeah, she failed. So. Anyways, my favorite combat moment with Johnson occurred in the Shanghai section of the game, the Chinese section. I think it was it was Shanghai or... I think it was Shanghai, yeah. yeah. not Beijing. Um, we were holed up in an entire floor of a hotel. Several of the group members were off investigating the city or feeding the ghoul that they found. The, sort of, the ghoul was an informant, and they were feeding them bodies in order to get information from him. So, anyway. Perfectly reasonable. Per, yeah, call Cthulhu at that point. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Except for one that was in his room. One player that was in his room, and another who had gone crazy and was always carrying a stick of dynamite with him, <laughs> who was at the bar. Uh, Johnson had stayed behind to guard the floor, including several of the Mythos items the group had collected. He was sitting in a chair in the hallway when Ross, uh, when Ross sent a cultist up the set of stairs on each end of the hallway to try and pinch the floor. 
Johnson heard the cultist coming up the stairs and managed to slip unseen into his room. As the cultist walked by his door, Johnson stepped out of the hallway, grabbed the cultist by the shirt, started walking him down the hallway towards the other cultist. The other cultist started shooting, hitting the cultist Johnson was holding. Ross ended up giving me one point of soak per every hit point the cultist had, but he also made me make strength checks to see if Johnson could hold up a dead body with one hand. So Johnson started shooting back with a forty-five by bracing his arm on the meat shield cultist's shoulder. Uh, Johnson ended up having many more combat situations throughout the game, but that was the most memorable. Johnson also negotiated Lauren's arms deal, which he sent uh, <laughs> encoded to Tom's character. Tom's only reaction was a low whistle at the table made uh, all the other ta- that made all the other players turn and look. One last note, Johnson survived the campaign, but was catapulted through time. Ross at one point was going to use him in the basis of a Delta Green scenario, but good luck to any PCs that encounter him. So, uh, yeah, that was a fun game. And I remember using a book as a meat shield, that's just a classic. That's man. good, that's good yeah, shit. Yeah, so uh, uh, Call of Cthulhu it can be very pulpy, uh, pulp action kind of thing, you know. So, mm. anyways, uh, what was so? Tell us about your. Mine's not as much an anecdote. Well, I guess it is, but it's also another one of my why I think Palladium sucks. I forget who. Do who's... go on. So shall I? Yes. Yes, I forget who the GM was. In the, at the end, I guess it really doesn't matter. All you need to know is that he was making us do the full. You roll completely random on everything. So I, I even forget I barely played the character at all so all i really remember were two particular roles like first like all your stats are all you know rolled completely random and your odds of actually getting any bonuses from your stats is small since i think at 16 is the minimum it has to be to even get a one minor bonus for iq any, or, or, any or, or in general yeah you're right i, I believe so that's that so, sounds right my iq I don't know if it was that day the gods were just taking a great big dump on my head, but three. <laughs> 30, that, that would translate to an IQ of 30, which is yes. below a baboon. Yeah. So that, of course, uh, set my mind in motion. Like, I actually, I, do I got to keep this? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. I mean, it wasn't vindictive, just, yeah, for the rules, you have to keep that role. Like, okay, uh, sure. So then it came time for all my characters' education level. And what do you know on the percentile dice? 99, which means I had a doctorate and or PhD. So I, t- I st- took it all, and the thing about Palladium is, you know, like, incredibly low stats don't give you any penalties. So I was, I t- just, for, just for shits and grins, I took medical doctor program. So I was an MD with an IQ barely above your average pig. You know, I think I could justify a reason for it. Like, you were a brilliant doctor, but then the uh, the anvil dropped. And, uh, well, the thing is, with, the, with, the, the, with the starting level of medical doctor, the two, the two percentiles, one to diagnose, then to treat, to diagnose just starts at 60%. Yeah. And the treatment starts at 40%. So, really, even though my IQ was less than most animals... <laughs> I still had a 60% chance to successfully diagnose the, the medical problem and a 40% chance to treat it. Well, you know, judging from what I know about the medical diagnosis procedure, i.e. I've watched some episodes of House, it's simple. It's never lupus. So, <laughs> it's not lupus. That's what. That's well, the thing you... is, I, I interpreted that as I probably couldn't even speak yeah. with an IQ that low. You just point to the right medicine. 
I, I made, I in character, yes, I actually make grunting noises. <laughs> but then again, of course, one of our teammates got injured, yeah. and I'm the only doctor. <laughs> so I did my shit, and apparently the guy who's only nominally sentient... <laughs> First, uh, I, I successfully diagnosed what the, where the bullet entered and what the damage it did. And then when it came to treat it, I rolled a three. <laughs> so I not only treated that wound, I critically treated it. So there, I mean, basically, I'm someone who's eating his own feces and picking lice off himself suddenly performs a miraculous house level and the bullet's out. <laughs> I, I don't know. That, that, that might be the best character ever. The idiot savant and, doctor. And the, uh, the, only, like, the only thing I think I do, I howled in triumph because I held the bullet up. <laughs> it's like the scene from 2001. The black monolith's there. The monkey's like, oh, oh, oh. You know, Except so. I just performed a very delicate surgery <laughs> yeah. to remove a bullet. Yeah. Sewed him back up and you're like, ah. Um, I like that. I, I think that. But it once again proves to me. <laughs> That's not, this but is, that wasn't an intentional character concept. That was just the luck of the dice. That, but still. In a, like okay, in like D twenty, if you roll like if you had a, you know three in a stat, it cost you big time. Yeah, this well, one there's like it's there's no penalty for having the minimum like a, a thirty IQ. I can you know none of my skills have any penalties. Right, the the, the stat of three is uh, irrelevant. Um, really, actually, the stat of anything from thirteen to three to fifteen is irrelevant. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that is that that that's a weakness, I mean, and in fourth and in most versions of D twenty games, like you you have options to have all the characters have, start their attributes at around six or eight at the very least. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never seen a, a a player character being forced to have an IQ of or any stat at three unless they're playing some really weird extreme character like you know an, a brain in a jar that can't move or something like yeah. that. So uh, unless the players asking for it they don't get at which, attributes and like once that. again which sucks because I think Palladium has some really awesome settings oh yeah again I'll just say I'll play riffs if, as long as if the rules would, would, would not suck so uh, although I think I did play a one shot of a, a, a riffs d20 modern game where I played a kobold office worker office manager mm-hmm. uh, and that was pretty fun and uh, but the game fell apart so I would like to run a d20 modern game set in rips basically get rid of the MDC stuff but keep everything else so. yeah I'd, I'd, I'd totally play that yeah but uh, we're gonna that, be good for that that, that yeah. is my other that is my uh, anecdote. anecdote so alright uh, lastly we have two actually two and then I'm looking at the messages from a listener Scott Lynch hello listener yes my name is Scott Lynch been playing RPGs from about 1981 I live in Halifax Nova Scotia Canadian yes in Soviet occupied Canada duh unlike your comments on high school role playing encounters mine were actually not that bad and some quite rewarding the story is one of the funnier ones back around 84 85 I was playing AD&D during lunchtime in high school with some friends, Mark and Cameron, well, by this time, since we had all been players for a couple of years, AD&D had fatigue, had set it at uh, settled in. Keep in mind that for all of us, the only version there was and ever will be was first edition. So just to mix it up and to add some flavor of, uh, to the already moldering fantasy game, Mark decides to run the game using Role Master rules. He has that in all caps, by the way. Uh, Roll Master <laughs> by Iron Crown Enterprises. Insert a large collective 
Ugh, here, if you please. Can't remember a thing about the adventure itself except for this one incident. Cameron and I were playing mediocre PCs of some sort or another that would have equaled first or second level in AD&D stats, okay? Dungeon crawling along and ended up a room full filled with treasure. Picture a Walt Disney dragon lair with gold pieces up to our knees and all sorts of other booty. While our PCs are in awe, <laughs> along with us as players, Mark, the DM, or whatever it was called in, Roarmaster, announces that a skeleton dro- uh, draped in robes and a crown comes to life. It's a lich! Mark's waxes poetically about how the lich is so powerful! While Cameron and I can feel that our PCs are totally doomed, oddly, the lich, never got its name, gives us a proposition. If we can destroy him, we will be allowed to keep all of his treasure. Both of us realize we are dead meat and begin stalling for time. Neither of us want to fight the thing. In any case, we're not sure how it would play out mechanically with these new and uh, turgid rules. Mark continues to tell us that the Lich is so powerful he can do anything. Cameron begins taunting Mark the DM by telling him... He doesn't really believe the Lich is all that powerful. Mark gets irritated and counters that the Lich is so powerful he can do anything. <laughs> it's all caps, you know. Cameron scruffs. Oh, yeah, I bet he can't turn into an elephant. To which Mark declares, okay, poof, he turns into an elephant. Cameron eggs him on several more times. Bah, I bet he can't turn into a cat. Well, poof, he turns into a cat. At this point, Cameron and I look at each other with devilish grins, knowing exactly what will come out next. But neither of us know, uh, daring to say, Cameron in a sly, slow voice says, I bet he can't turn into, uh, I don't know, a fly. Cameron, Mark snaps at the bait and says, oh yeah, well, poof, he turns into a fly. Cameron jumps up and says, guess what, Mark, squish, and makes a grinding motion with his hands. Cameron and I laugh our guts out. Mark stammers, well, uh, you have to roll 95 or higher to hit him. Camp rolls and fails, of course, so much for our brilliant plan. But I jump to attack. Let me try. Mark sulks and flicks a dice. Well, fine. You have to roll 95% or higher. I designate which die is a 10, which is 1, and I get this feeling it's pointless pointless exercise. I roll the percentage and get a 96. Yes, it is one word, too. All caps. 96! 96! Cameron and I scream out a cheer and dance around. Mark sulks and unilaterally declares slash stutters. Uh, you didn't kill him, you just stunned him. For crying out loud! I'll make sure he's dead this time. I'll grind his little insect body under my heel until he's a bug smear. And I make grindy motions (laughs) with my foot. Again, Mark flicks the percental dice at me and it's not even. So yeah, well you need to roll 95% or higher to hit him again. Okay, this is pointless. I'll go over this dice. Uh, I'll go, this dice is tens and this is ones, and I'm totally crushing the life out of him. Okay, well, here goes nothing. And I roll a 97! 97! One word, 97! 97! At this point, Cameron fell out of his chair laughing and pointing at Mark. I cheered and danced around the table. He's dead, I killed him! Mark almost had a temper tantrum, but composed himself, and like a spoiled child, began to tell me, You can't! You can't kill him! He has way too many hit points! It's impossible for him to die this way! Etc. Anyways, he had the etc. inside the quote mark, so... Mm. I didn't give a damn at this point. He could have killed us all, but this was just classic, and it reminds it didn't matter what he afterwards. But I ended up screaming back at him, Mark, I've crushed 100% of his body. I don't care how many hit points he had. He's dead. 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 Again. Uh, <laughs> all caps. But he had an exclamation point after each time. Oh, I see. So, yes. yeah. It, it, emphasize the emotion. 
Anyways, finally, Mark gives in, but stipulated, well, I hope you don't think I'm going to let you carry all this treasure out of here, do you? There's just too much of it. Again, at this point, Mark, Cameron, and I didn't care, and we settled for a canvas sack of gold the size of a garbage bag for each and nearly killed our poor donkey, making it haul it home. <laughs> From that day on, just the mention of, guess what, Mark? Squish! <laughs> and rubbing your hands together, set us off into peals of paroxysms and laughter. <laughs> and anyways, he's got another one. Oh, do tell. Yes. Away back before GURPS and its role-playing supplement for Car Wars uh, had ever come out. The Car Wars game had moved itself towards role-playing elements by introducing experience and role-playing adventures in auto-duel quarterly. Boy, those were the days back then. Quarterly mag, yeah. Nice. Early 80s, man. Or mid-80s, actually. (laughs) I decided to run a Car Wars role-playing adventure. Basically, this is all out of Mad Max, you understand, in World War. Yeah, yeah. by the way, what what is what is the accent you're saying Car Wars in? It's, I, I'm, I, I, I don't know. You're really tired? I'm, I have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, I decided to run a Car Wars role-playing adventure from Autodual Quarterly, Quarterly, Volume 4, Number 1, March 1986, called Midwest Passage, Okay. I was just that was just before I was six years old. <laughs> wow, I was running it, and the players were Cameron and two of his pals named Paul and Andrew. Question mark. I guess he isn't sure about Andrew. Okay. Um, he created the cars from scratch, and also the PCs, which were very rudimentary. The PC in the Car Wars original game had only three hit points and a fixed initiative, along with sidearms and that did fixed damage. This made sense since the game was about cars and not people. Yeah, I mean, who cars. gives a fuck about people? Smart cars, man. Anyways, got down to the business of playing the actual scenario. I read them the situation and set the stage for what was to happen. Went like this. The PCs are in Deerfield, Illinois. Stopped at a roadside diner. And totally aimless like all PCs without the referee's guidance. They all know each other, but don't have a reason for existing yet. <laughs> they need, I like that. Uh, they need a job slash adventure. So I start to read the beginning of the written adventure with a plot hook. <laughs> While they're in the diner, well-dressed man comes in and announces that he their auto uh, that he noticed their auto-duel vehicles outside and wants to know who owns them because he wants to hire them to get back to St. Paul. He's a senator on a mission to stamp out the anarchist relief front, the convenient bad guys. Now, it says right at the end of the little speech, the players should accept, of course, because if they don't, there's no adventure. So, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The senator go recruits his bodyguards from a roadside diner. Excuse me, sir, I noticed you have the Corvette with the missile launchers. Would you like to escort me to St. Paul? You seem trustworthy. Yeah, <laughs> you seem trustworthy, exactly. Right? <laughs> I thought this was fairly obvious, and since every published adventure had the initial readout and then go portion, at the beginning, Cameron waves the man over to their booth. They were all sitting in the booth, going to have dinner, saying, Over here! But at the same time, Andrew interrupts and commands the moment, countermands the move. No, don't tell him who we are! This sets off several minutes of Cameron, Andrew, and the mellow, good-natured Paul arguing about what to do. Should they call the man over or wait? <laughs> Cameron puts his foot down. Fuck it. I don't care. I'm calling him over. Andrew's PC pulls out his heavy pistol and points it at Cameron's PC's face. Andrew's PC tells Cameron, if you do that, I'm going to kill you right now. Still, Cameron insists, I don't care. I'm calling him over anyway. 
Andrew tells me his referees, that's it. I'm going to blast him. He rolls to hit and kills Cameron PC with a point blank shot that even the muzzle blast alone would cave in the front of someone's face. Paul B, Cameron's PC gunner pal partner, whips out a submachine gun and points at Andrew. Andrew swings a heavy pistol towards Andrew's Paul's PC, but the two of them have the same fixed reflex last initiative number they open up on each other instantly and both die <laughs> instantly uh, at this point I'm starting st- staring at the game map and booklet trying to fathom what just happened I read the intro and at the beginning of the game at the end of the first round it's a total party kill by their own hands they're all dead it's over Suddenly, they realize the same thing and begin to laugh nervously. So I looked at them and told them, you realize just what happened. Probably the shortest RPG session of all time. In the first turn, you have killed each other. I recapped it like it's all a bad joke. A man walks into the diner and says, whose cars are those outside? One man sitting in a booth with two other shouts over here. And the man looks over. The booth explodes with point-blank fire. Point blank gunfire. Bang! Rat a tat tat. Leaving a gory mess behind everywhere. The end. I can't remember what happened after that because I believe it could have. But I believe that all that could have been done uh, was to reset the game and start all over again. Uh, hope you like these. Hope you do read them out. I'd love your responses. So, uh, well, we did read them out. <laughs> yes, we did. It does read like a really fucked up postmodern joke. It's like a man <laughs> walks into a diner, asks whose cars are out there. <laughs> the three people <laughs> in the car shoot each other in the face. <laughs> the end. Wait, what's the point? <laughs> you know, that, that sounds like a kids in the hall sketch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which, I, which, by the way, that's positive. I love that. I love kids in the hall. That I, I would love to see a sketch like that. <laughs> We had to do something like we had to bring Unreal that to read, life. Man. Yeah, I want to do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I want to hire you. I kill. No, we can't talk to the quest giver. Uh, that reminds me of a, a minor anecdote. The uh, in the fourth ed campaign, at one point, the players were talking to the PC NPCs or something like that, and I mimicked how. The, I was sort of trying to make fun of the players, and I was sort of like, well, the players are like, fight us or give us a quest, shut up. <laughs> and that's that's basically what it is for the players, fight us or give us a quest. That's all you all you care about. <laughs> for the rest of the world, fight us or give us a quest. So That was Cody, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. well, no, I said it, and then Cody laughed at it. I think. And then Cody latched onto it. Yeah, he was, so. Because um, you, you we are all avant-garde. Yeah, so. Anyways, I th- I think that's a, a pretty good way of uh, wrapping this particular episode up, and um, <laughs> no witnesses. Yeah, no witness indeed. So, um, anyways, this has been episode twenty-seven, Grand Theft Apparatus of Qualsh Sandbox Games, and uh, on sale on sale at your local gaming store. Never. <laughs> and remember, fight us or give us a quest. Japanese Fucking a. Uh, being based on history. The um, stages of the game will also be based on famous battles which took, actually took place in ancient Japan. So here's this giant enemy crab. What I'll do is use Benkei here to <clears throat> flip over this crab on its back. Let's see if he shows up. And you attack its weak point for massive damage. <clears throat> giant crab, enemy crab, giant crab, giant enemy crab, enemy crab, giant crab, based on Japanese history. Giant crab, enemy crab, giant crab, giant
giant enemy crab, giant crab, enemy crab, actually took place in ancient Japan. Massive crab, massive damage, massive crab.